Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. Today we are very honored and privileged to have amongst us Dr. Anuradha Chaudhary, who is presently an assistant professor at Humanities and Social Science Department at IIT Kharagpur for Sanskrit, Indian Psychology, French and History of Science and Technology in Ancient India. where she explores the contributions of indian thought in the fields of psychology development happiness studies linguistics and in other related socio cultural dimensions she's a graduate from shri aurobindo international center of education from pondicherry where she did her higher education in sanskrit and completed her phd on vedic psychology following this she was awarded the erasmus mundus scholarship of the eu for an emblet in crossways in european humanities due to her interest in many subjects she also received a un related scholarship for a course on human rights at the summer university of human rights geneva before joining iit kharagpur she was a fellow at development foundation bangalore as well as an adjunct faculty at the veda vigyana shodha samsthanam in bangalore She also helped to establish the Center of Indian Psychology at Jain University in Bangalore, where she organized and participated in conferences and workshops to deliberate on an alternative paradigm for psychology based on an Indic worldview. Along with Dr. Vinay Chandra, she had edited a book called Perspectives of Indian Psychology and co-authored another on happiness, Indian Perspectives. She's a volunteer at Sanskrit Bharati and she's passionate student and teacher of spoken sanskrit and the transformative power of its sounds and offers online courses available on the swayam platform and on yogaanytime.com she also works with several yoga organizations like the european union of yoga irish yoga association among many others this is along with dr vinay chandra to highlight the psychological dimensions of the yoga tradition in a unique endeavor on 11/2011 in consonance with her work she initiated a worldwide movement of humanity human humanity unity called ekta which we will be talking about as we start speaking to her we can only do our part huh? that we are not really the agents of our achievements because that's what we are confronted with or rather the absence of those achievements is what confronts us during this period in these present circumstances we are confronted with ourselves to look at our own expectations our plannings our biases and so many let's say furnitures of the inner world so how are we arranging them are we constantly like in a room if you constantly fill it up with things you cannot have excellence in that room so is our head are we like constantly stuffing what are we stuffing in this inner space welcome dr chaudhary thank you very much so the way we work with these interviews the way the way we start these podcasts is get to know our interviewee a little bit better ask them about their upbringing and also if and how if spirituality played any role in their life would be great if you can talk a little bit about that so i was um, very fortunate to have been brought up in the shri aurobindo ashram 
in their center of education. And um, when I'm normally asked about my early education, I tell people that I grew up in paradise. So I think that pretty much sums up the kind of joy with which I was introduced to learning. The philosophy of the education of the Ashram School was that one had to cater to all the different levels of one's being and try and bring perfection in all of that. So this education known as the integral education philosophy is based on the integral yoga that was talked about and written extensively about by Sri Aurobindo and the mother. And the core concept of it being, of course, the fact that we are all essentially divine beings having a human experience and not human beings who have a divine experience. So that was the very core of our education. And as I said, our school was always an invitation to explore the different dimensions of our being. The mother, in fact, says that the whole purpose of education was not to get a job, not to you know, just earn a degree, to get a career. It was more about discovering one's own potentials and trying to reconnect to the self within each one of us. And uh, I think that laid the foundations of my life and that has been uh, bedrock of who I am today. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and I believe you moved a little bit as well before you moved to Pondicherry in the armed forces your, your family was, is that correct? Yes. So my father is a retired colonel from the Indian Army. And I must say that I've been very fortunate in terms of my family lineage also, because my both my parents have been very deeply spiritual uh, from their background as well. And uh, my father had read a lot of Sri Aurobindo and was looking for some place to put us so that our education would not be so disruptive with their movement. And therefore, being an army child, I must say that it was a great privilege to have got to see many corners of the country that normal children don't get to visit. So that also has added a lot of enrichment to my life experience. But then my father, uh, when we were very young, both my brother and I, he decided that it was important for us to get this kind of one education staying in one place. And uh, that's when we joined the Ashram School. So before that, some places that we were in were the, uh, in Chennai, the OTA. My father was an adjutant there. Then after that, we were in Andamans for about two and a half years. So that was, <laughs> I mean, extremely fortunate with the experiences that I've had. Well, thank you. As you said, you know, it laid the foundation of who you are right now and then and it's hard not to talk about the elephant in the room at this point of time, even though this interview might be released much after the lockdown and, and hopefully things would change. We are all dealing with the effects of the coronavirus and uh, COVID-19 at this point of time. Now, based on your upbringing, based on who you are, uh, you have a, a very strong foundation on, on the Vedic philosophies, yoga and sound. What are some of the ways when we come out of this, right? Uh, and then this will be passed in the near future sometime. We don't know when that will be. But what are some of the ways that 
you have been using based on who you are to keep yourself motivated that this shall pass, this shall go away. And when it does, many more would need those techniques, those ways to keep us strong during these difficult times. So if you can share some of your thoughts on that, I would love to hear it. It's very interesting because I have a daily conversation almost with my colleague, a very dear friend uh, from Kharagpur, um, Dr. Jinya Mukherjee. So we have this daily conversation uh, where we share each other's experience through these times. And she comes from a very different background, a very, let's say, more of the regular background of being more oriented towards a profession and uh, being active, uh, meeting people, you know, being more engrossed in the world activities and also being very concerned, very strong activist about, you know, the welfare of the downtrodden, let's say. So in our conversations, what always emerges is the fact that it is natural for one to be very worried in these circumstances because of the incredible uncertainty that lies ahead of us. But when we are faced with this uncertainty, the underlying assumption is that life in general is certain, which in itself needs very serious exploration, examination rather, a closer examination. Because I think as a human race, we credit ourselves with too much of, um, or rather we give ourselves too much credit for the achievements that come our way. And if one goes through the Indian philosophy and all one realizes that at the end of the day, there are the human being rather is a small, I wouldn't say a small, I'll just take this part again. But uh, I think the human being takes too much credit for the things that come one's way, his or her own way in life, on life's journey. And a deeper understanding of Indian thought and uh, the truths of life, more fundamental truths of laws of life, invariably try to awaken us to this reality that we can only do our part, that we are not really the agents of our achievements, because that's what we are confronted with, or rather the absence of those achievements is what confronts us during this period. So I think, I mean, so the way I look at it basically is this, that there is a much larger game at play. There is a Leela that is happening now because in our linear understanding of the world, we would never have imagined that the entire world could be brought to a standstill the way it has happened now. And the question, therefore, is, is this just by chance or is there an orchestrator of this thing? And when I speak of orchestrator, it's not like I'm talking of a god or something like that. But what I'm trying to say is that there is probably, there is a greater truth that is driving these movements. And in the Vedic idea, there is this idea of ritam or the right of things. So if we look at our life experiences in the recent past, we have gone way beyond, we have gone into the excesses and we've crossed the paths of the right. We have uh, transgressed on the paths of the right on many fronts. And uh, like Krishna also says, whenever there is adharma, 
I will come back and I will help establish that right again. So dharma here being this idea of the right. So the long and short of your question, the answer to your question is this, that the way I am able to, I look at the situation is to say that this is a God-given opportunity or this is an opportunity that nature has provided us individuals to forcefully look inside because we live mistakenly in this idea that it is what happens outside that is of great importance in our lives. But what happens outside is only relevant when it touches us in our world inside. And so this opportunity of putting everything, all the external activity to a complete halt is a very clear indication of nature's that we need to focus our attention inwards and solve many things. It's an opportunity for one to understand what the frustrations really are about. And if one is very worried about somebody not, not being well and the anxieties that are coming up, so I think it's a brilliant opportunity to become a spectator of this drama that is transpiring in front of us and to instead of being an actor on the stage and getting distressed with all you know the the props of the scene to step back and become the director and say what would i change in this scene to remain unaffected and yet to use it as an opportunity for growth i love that thought and idea that that maybe we should pause like you mentioned, and, and look at what really gives us happiness and, and the excesses that uh, we have been accumulating and go deeper within. And, and that makes me think of the other thing that you've proposed uh, that goes very much hand in hand is the idea of integrated well-being theory, the framework, because we have been really driven by this growth of our external senses and this want and desire for more and more. But as uh, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts about the theory where you talk about the entire framework and, and Sukha and, and how you relate to what is happening now, because I think that is what people will need. I mean, I know a lot of people are already doing that, but I think that is what people would need in the future. Some sort of a guideline that let's not again uh, delve into more and more just on the outside, but try to find out what is right for us, as you mentioned, the Ritamra aspect. I'll take this question one step before and uh, try and connect it to a linguistic phenomenon of Sanskrit. Okay, so it's very interesting to notice that in Sanskrit, as well as in most of the Indian languages, we do not have a verb to have. We just have a verb to be. So if you want to say, I have a book, uh, you can say that in English. But in uh, Sanskrit, you would say pustakam asti, which means that the book is with me. So the emphasis in the Indic tradition has never been on having things because of the temporary nature of everything that you can have. And rather the concept of things being with you and you using them as a trustee of something. Now, where does that tie in with this larger idea of excesses, etc.? Is that if we try and trace the root of our insatiable desire, which uh, Buddha says is the cause of all sufferings, basically. So we recognize that the need, or rather those individuals who 
who invest extensively in having are those who have a greater sense of lack in them so the external having is a compensatory movement for fulfilling something that is absent in the being and this opportunity of a lockdown is to help us to look inside and say that with the resources that i have today whatever is there who am i who am i without all these things that i have accumulated all these possibilities that i cannot have without that who am i and it's in this context that i will just bring up the idea of sukha because where lies my fullness and happiness you know all these are interrelated concepts so the word sukha itself comes from two words two sounds su and ka su meaning excellent and ka meaning space ka can also mean the senses and therefore sometimes sukha is that which is pleasant for the senses and that's the usual sense of the term sukha something that's pleasurable is sukhamaya okay that gives us pleasure but then that gets contrasted with dukha and very interestingly in the chandogya upanishad narada is talking to this young kumara sanat kumara and says that you know you have uh, i have all the knowledge i have uh, all the knowledge of the different sciences of the world and yet i am worried so give me the secret of happiness and there he gives a very sanat kumara gives him an, a definition of happiness he says yovai bhuma tat sukham that which is expansive that is happiness or that is sukha and it's uh, when we understand sukha in the sense of this excellent spaces then one can start questioning about it how does it link to this idea of expansiveness versus you know a contracted space and where is this excellent space is it in the excellence outside of my system because then we realize that there are largely two spaces there is an external space and there is an internal space so which space needs to be excellent so as we see that many people are frustrated today because the excellence of the external space has been curtailed right with the corona the danger of the corona lurking in your ex- external space that space is not within your reach easily now and therefore the frustration because of the outsourcing of our excellence and the fullness to something outside of ourselves which is not in our control i mean very logically so when one recognizes that this excellence is actually describing a quality of the inner space it changes the responsibility of happiness quite drastically because then if the happiness or rather if this excellence is a quality of the inner space then we become the sole custodians and we are solely responsible for the nature and the quality of our inner space right and therefore then questions come up what do we mean by excellence of inner space so how are we looking after what i call you know if you equate it to a room then how are we looking after the structures of that room which is the body of that inner space how are we maintaining it because it needs maintenance any structure needs maintenance in these times how are we maintaining that structure are we just slaying sloth on the bed and not wanting to do anything not taking a bath not doing all those things or are we ensuring that even that structure is excellent if that is excellent then you start looking inwards even further and you see that all the different emotions so in a house you have furniture you have you know the different things and then you have the different people that determine the excellence of the space so in these present circumstances we are confronted with ourselves to look at our own expectations our plannings our biases and so many let's say furnitures of the inner world so how are we arranging them 
are we constantly like in a room if you constantly fill it up with things you cannot have excellence in that room so is our head are we like constantly stuffing what are we stuffing in this inner space are we looking at them and are we watching our uh, senses which are the doors and windows to that inner room so are we watching are we conscious about how we are allowing external information to create storms within ourselves and what do we do about it so these are all questions that come up when we are talking about excellence of inner space and so i was proposing this idea in this context of self architecture so self architecture for integral well being so how do we design and manage our inner spaces in order to ensure a certain quality of excellence within and the beauty is that uh, since we are at the end of the day we are much more porous in terms of our vibratory nature with our atmosphere so if we sort out our internal vibrations the chances of it impacting the surroundings in the similar manner are very high so if we send out positive things it's likely that we are going to amplify that and that really is the need of the hour and the last thing i'll just add regarding the integrative wellbeing is that the idea of the integrated well integrated wellbeing is again linked to this question of who i am and what do i have the question boiling down to do i have a body or am i my body because that's what i can look after right we've talked about this the external is not within our control at the moment so what do i do about this just do i have a body or am i my body if i have a body then how do i identify with it what is my relationship with it do i have emotions or am i my emotions can we choose to distance ourselves from emotions we don't want and decide what is the emotion i i would like to harbor in my inner space do i then also want to uh, same thing at the level of thoughts what are the thoughts i have and am i my thoughts you know all of those discussions and so if we can look into each of these sector sections of our being and ensure a certain harmony that would then lead to the idea of an integrated wellbeing I think that's uh, as a yoga practitioner, it it relates a lot to me because when I was reading about what you were saying about the koshas and which is what you were talking about without actually naming them, it's something that uh, not just resonated with me, but the whole idea of who am I, tatvamasi, or like you know, in different ways, the Mahavakyas talk about it, and I think you touched on the. idea of vibration and that's something that you you work on the mantra so i would like to hear a little bit more about i think most of us know what mantras are but i don't think many of us have studied it as deeply as you have or or have the knowledge you talk about that uh, these mantras are in in line with the universe if they are in the right intonation and I think we would love to know more what does that even mean in terms of the frequency and vibration and you touched on how they generate positive vibes. So the science of the mantra tradition is a very profound one and uh, I normally also quote Tesla who says that if you look at the world in terms of vibrations and energy you will know everything that needs to be known. I have not quoted him verbatim but that's the some total what he says so my work with sanskrit also led me towards trying to understand what are these aksharas what are these sounds that form the basis of the sanskrit mantras at least and you push it further and you realize that 
at the end, everything is fundamentally vibrations, everything is fundamentally energy. So if everything is fundamentally vibrations and energy, these vibrations also correspond to very specific effects. If you make a particular sound, you can break glass, you change the sound, you no longer break glass. So it's a very scientific phenomenon, this relationship between a vibration and its effect. And that effect cuts through all the layers of the panchakosha that you were mentioning. So it affects us in our, at our physical level. It affects us at the pranic or the emotional level. So we listen to some kind of music and we feel good. You listen to another and you feel sad. It affects us at our mental level because you listen to some music and you listen to some words and it evokes certain thoughts. You listen to other words, it evokes different thoughts. So the same sounds cut through all the different levels of our being. A mantra which in Sanskrit, of course, is mananat trayate iti mantra, which means that when you keep thinking about it, it protects you. And I often ask, ask the participants of our workshop that how can a sound protect one? Right. And uh, the answer to that could be that you have certain sounds that when you listen to them, they, they create anxiety and fear in your system. There are other sounds that when you listen to them, you feel more relaxed. So a sound can either make your system more tense or make you more relaxed. If you're more relaxed, you're in a much better position. You feel more protected and more courageous to face the challenges of the world. That's why many people listen to music when they're in difficult times, because it helps them to feel more empowered in certain ways. So the mantra is, in my understanding, nothing but systematized sound technology where sounds have been placed in a certain order where they will necessarily create desired effects at different levels. Having said that, it then becomes important to pronounce them precisely. And therefore, this necessity of precise pronunciation is not about a cultural you know, requirement of if you don't do this, you will have something else. It's, it's a very simple understanding that when you're trying to open a certain portal on the computer, you put in a certain password, right? If in the password, instead of a capital A, you put a small A, that particular portal will not open. So if the world is nothing but myriads, I mean, millions and millions of vibratory interactions, then it's like a very complex network of sounds in a certain level. The mantras have been carefully received as master keys to unlock different portals. So if we put a capital instead of a small letter or the other way around, we will not have full access to that portal. The universal powers are fortunately very generous because uh, they recognize the fact that the sound that we produce is the sum total of different levels of sounds that we make. What I mean by that is at a physical level, we are vibrating. At an emotional level, we have vibrations. At the mental level, we have vibrations. At a higher spiritual level, we have vibrations. Now, if the deeper emotional, if the intent is very pure, then one could literally say abracadabra and you will still open the portal. Because the universe is listening to the, uh, is listening to authentic vibrations. Fortunately, because that has power. And similarly, if somebody pronounces perfectly and is all, you know, distracted inside, you know, the vibratory nature is all disturbed, you know, one is not going to have that same effect. 
So in order for the mantra to protect one in the desired manner, it becomes important also to produce the right sounds at all the levels of one's being. And it also connects in with the truth of sounds. The truth of sounds, not just from what you pronounce, but also from your intention behind that sound, your mental idea behind that sound, the deeper spiritual aspiration behind that sound. When all of that gets aligned, then the sound one produces acts like a laser because it's all these frequencies in alignment. And then it transforms. One doesn't need to do it a thousand times. You do it once and you can feel the difference. So the mantra has the power of creating these resonances. And just a last thing on that note was it's how the mantra protects the individual is also like in a battlefield. If somebody is playing a flute, the ear automatically starts following that. So in the battlefield of our inner world, the mantra acts like this guiding sound of the flute. And I was explaining this to someone the other day and it struck me why Krishna always plays the flute. Because it has the power to woo the soul on notes of truth, literally. thinking about Krishna and I was thinking about the flute as you said that I think it's amazing what sound can do and I love the idea of authenticity because that's what stood out to me personally if your intention is really authentic and comes from the heart you will be in contact so that idealism should be in the authenticity rather than the perfection of the pitch having said that if you are authentic at all levels of your being, you would also try and be truthful in the production of the sound. So it is not compensatory for letting this part be imperfect. And that's where this integral, the concept of integral perfection is very key. That how do we fine tune all the parts of our being to be in alignment with greater truth structures? Yeah, the boundaries are blurred. But once you start approaching them, that's when you know that you are in perfect harmony. Is I, I don't know if there is a perfect harmony in, in what you're saying. Is that what you mean, that you'll be in perfect alignment and perfect harmony? So this also ties in with the Vedic triad of Satyam, Ritam, Brihat, which is the description of the Swarga in the Vedas. So already the term Swarga means going to your own self, the deeper self. So that's where heaven really lies. But this idea of satya is a very key idea because in the Indian tradition, we, not we believe, our seers have witnessed the fact through their own experience that the underlying energy is a conscious energy. And if we look at the way nature functions, one would be amazed at the order with which she operates. And therefore, again, uh, bringing up the question as to what in nature is driving this conscious planning. And therefore, the idea that the underlying chit shakti or the underlying substratum, the consciousness, which is the substratum of all creation in the Sanatana Dharma or the Vedic culture, is uh, fundamentally, it is, so therefore it is sat, it exists. The second attribute of it is that it is conscious, it is chit, and the third is, therefore, it is spontaneously blissful. It's a spontaneous outcome of being, of just being and being fully conscious. So in that context, there is the idea that 
because the underlying energy is a conscious energy every structure that emerges from it is intrinsically conscious and is knowable if it is knowable like there is something there is a knowability of a blueprint that exists and that is satya and the whole attempt of the indic endeavor spiritual endeavor was to try and understand what is the right way of representing that blueprint so the ritta is this dynamic truth in action so can we discover the ritta of things the right of things and when one would discover that so if you have the ideal blueprint and you're able to replicate it in manifestation the consequence would be the optimum result which is your brihat and which is also sukha sukha is this absolute expansion right so the example that i also connected with is the fact that if you want to uh, if you want to do surgery for example you want to wear a glove now would you if one randomly picked up a glove that was too big then one would be very clumsy in what one would do if you picked up something that was too tight one would be restricted from doing what one has to do in the best way possible so in order to do the best surgery which is a very fine work one has to know the contours of one's hand which is satya one has to wear the glove the manifestation of that satya in terms of ritta and then the action that that will follow will be of brihat quality or the optimum quality now when you wear a glove that holds your hand in the best way possible that holding of the hand was the notion of dharma the upholding of something in its ideal so that's why the whole emphasis of the indic tradition when, and especially in today's context when we are watching ramayana and the mahabharata all the time there is this constant call to live according to the highest ideal of whichever level of functioning that one is engaged in and when that would happen individually collectively it would result in abhyudaya or the greatest good for all and that's why the motto of our country was satyam eva jayate that that truth that blueprint if you can identify that blueprint it's not about your personal truth and my personal truth which is all you know embroiled and sh- uh, you know overshadowed with our preferences and biases etc this truth is really the the ability to perceive the ideal of things and the replication of that in ritam is what would lead to definite victory so i think when we chose satyam eva jayate the second part being nanritam i think as a nation we did, we should have included that part as well because i think that is key to say not just satyam eva jayate but nanritam so the not right will never lead lead you to the victory finally so that right concept is very key I think we should recommend that for including in <laughs> moving forward but uh, we're getting towards the end of the interview but I do have one question before we get to close and you touched a little bit about idealism and this whole idea of there is one truth and we have our own truths that we work with but doesn't that sometime hamper our growth that we are under this burden that we have to live with this idealism and this idealism was envisioned by by the rishis the sages in ways uh, we don't know 
But in the life that we live, it's very easily said when people talk about India, you're from India, you know, you have these highest ideals, but life is not always that black and white. We have to stretch through different aspects. And, and sometimes we are buried under those burdens of, have I done this right? Am I good enough? You're constantly judging yourself. <laughs> and when you do that, I think it, uh, the life can become challenging for a few. I'm not saying everyone. I mean, I'm talking about myself also, that it can become challenging that you have to live to the highest ideals. And I think I can relate it with an example of a yoga practitioner and a teacher that if I do something which is not in line with a yogic lifestyle, I don't eat meat. So, you know, that's an easy one. But if I did that, oh, you are a yogi. How do you eat meat? Or, you know, it's something that uh, you go and purchase something which is, you are a yogi. How did you do, you know, so, so those things do come in. And how does one deal with that in your experience? So it's interesting you talk about the meat factor because I'm a Bengali. And that takes into factor certain things as a natural part of our diet as well. So <laughs> I get asked this question as well. And I normally say that I'm a, I used to say it more unhesitatingly before that I'm a happy non-vegetarian, but now I'm a little, become a little more thoughtful about that. <laughs> but the fact is this, that there were reasons why non-vegetarian was prohibited because of the violence it engenders in terms of the animal and what that animal has to undergo and therefore eating it has a certain effect on us. So I will not like make this discussion about the pros and cons of eating non-vegetarian, but what I want to basically say is that the eating or not eating of vegetarian food was associated with a certain swabhava, a certain nature, which was either sattvic or tamasic, I mean rajasic or tamasic. In Bengal, we've had some of the highest of sages would be non-vegetarian eaters. So they are not necessarily, you know, in absolute connection there. All right. Uh, but having said that, of course, if one becomes more aware of what that food does to us, of what food in general does to us, then one would become more conscious. So that is a note that has, uh, there's no two ways about that. So this thing about the ideal, it's a fact that people think when we start doing yoga life, we get more easy because, uh, you know, everybody who's in the yoga world, a lot of people in the yoga world look more Zen than other people are. So therefore doing yoga would make you automatically more Zen. But what one realizes is that the moment one steps into this world, one becomes confronted with choices. As long as you have no choice and you are comfortable in the complacency of an, let's say, ignorant and ordinary life. When I'm saying these, there's no judgment on it. It's just that when one is not particularly focused on what should one do, I mean, one is just going with the flow of life, which is perfectly fine if that's what one chooses to do. But then the question that one would ask oneself invariably at some point is that, what is all this for? So let's say if somebody is spending all their time in partying or drinking and things like that, at some point the question would come up as to what was the lifetime all about really? Because it will come to an end. I mean, whatever starts is supposed to come to an end. And therefore, the Indian seers had also asked themselves this question. And they wanted to find deeper meaning in life. And arrived at this idea of the fact that there is a directionality. So in the Indian worldview, life is not about just flowing with whatever comes your way. 
there is a reason why one has come and the extent to which one fulfills it would augur for one's greater good in the larger picture of things so a lifetime is filled with choices and those choices as yamraj puts it in the kathopanishad are basically about two things there is about the shreyas that which is good for one and that which is prayers that which is pleasurable life itself was divided into the four ashramas and the word sanskrit word ashrama literally meant constant struggle constant working out constant effort so while on one side one needs to make these choices these hard choices and not just be relaxed it is in the same line as if one wants to experience greater freedom and in oneself then it becomes important to make those choices that will lead to that greater freedom i mean just the situation of the lockdown for example i have these discussions with various friends who are all pretty miserable in this they're frustrated they're miserable they you know they're suffocated with this inability to go out and many of them are quite surprised that i'm pretty much at ease with the situation because in my normal routine i'm the one who's constantly out i have never spent so much time in my house as i've done in the last 3 years as i've done in the last 21 days put together so they were anticipating that this would be completely a very frustrating experience for me but because of a certain training i would say it really is a training of looking at the larger picture of things it also requires one to prepare for that larger picture it basically needs clarity i guess i guess there is no good or bad about the choices that people make it really is up to everybody's own life decision right but what matters is having clarity about what is it you want if one is happy with being you know affected by everything that comes your way then you become like a a puppet in the hands of nature in the hands of circumstances if that is what one is content being then so be it i mean there is no it's nobody's innocence responsibility also to tell somebody that no you're in the wrong path or you're in the right path whereas if somebody finds oneself in that miserable situation and says that you know i'm not being able to go out i will not be able to go out another two weeks now how am i going to spend this time am i going to spend this two weeks cribbing and uh, making a mess of my life and making everybody's life around me miserable or can i say that okay this is an opportunity can i make this a very constructive experience now this choice that one has to make from being a non constructive entity towards a constructive one is a hard one because it means letting go of a lot of one's patterns a lot of one's usual preferences all of that but i guess again it is all a matter of clarity if one knows one wants to go so i normally jokingly put it like this i said it's a choice we all have to go home some day or the other and in the larger spiritual backdrop that home is nothing but a liberated living which is not a victim of circumstances but which decides how the circumstances should be so if that is the way home then does one want highway or does one want to be on the myway the ideal of course is if the myway becomes the highway but the journey from the routine myway to the highway is fraught with conflict but if the site is clear if the destination is clear then 
there is no ends i mean it's the natural choice one would make so you start <laughs> listening to yourself more and more and uh, i think one interesting thing that you said about the choices aspect and the ashram things and so the way i i see you i've i've not come across too many vedic scholars who are females so that's one thing and and this would have been my first question but uh, i think this would be a great question to end with so you are like those female executives which are very far and few who are up in in management and when they make their way up there they realize that some of the choices that have been made have been made from a man's perspective and a lot of our texts have been written by men as well even though they may have been compiled by some and you know the knowledge may have come from different even the ashrams talk about men from one thing to the other to the other to the other i would love to know one your perspective on that second now that we know things a lot better we have developed as a human race in terms of certain levels of equality in its own way should we think of ways to integrate them into the existing texts or reinterpret them i think that would be a better way to ask the question but i would love to hear your perspective on it i think this gender question uh, the gender lens on our tradition is a very interesting one and i think it has two dimensions to it one is that there is for sure an imported lens where we have these very clear you know like men have these roles in terms of and it has been a high patriarchal dominated women have been suppressed kind of a lens and the other is i would say probably a more maybe philosophical lens of the truth in terms of what gender really means and to say that our culture was predominantly masculine i think is again not doing justice to the tradition at all because in the vedas you have more than 33 rishikas who were receivers of mantras and all the in the upanishads also you often have women who are far more learned and they question their husbands and they are able to dialogue with them even in shankaracharya's story you know you had mandala mishra's wife who was made the judge and you look at the ramayana mahabharata again and you see that the women were in no way less equal to the man but they were assigned different roles in society and very legitimately so for example i think it's a matter of how our society prioritized some things and therefore the roles that were assigned according to that so the upbringing of the child was extremely important because the child was the contribution of the couple for the next generation and in order to make that in the best way possible it was important for the emphasis was really laid on the woman i mean it's almost like a paradox to say that actually the indian tradition valued the woman much more than the man because they recognized her as the carrier of this future generation in fact there was a dialogue also in the ramayan today where they said that if she went no it was in the mahabharata when the family is discussing about sending the wife to the bakasura in that context you know they one of them had to go to the demon and she says that and then kunti tells her that you know if a mother goes if the lady goes that's the end of an entire generation so the woman has to be very protected 
and Manu was also greatly misunderstood there when he spoke about the woman being first under the guidance of her father and then under the protection of her husband and then under the protection of her son. It was for the simple understanding that when something is precious, then you have to be careful about how it is treated or how it is protected. When I'm saying this, I'm not talking of this from a conservative lens. I'm talking of it from a wisdom perspective. In our, I would say, rational enthusiasm, we have, you know, the wisdom out of, we've thrown the wisdom out of the window sometimes. So the Indic tradition was a very wise tradition. And for different historical reasons, the woman's role did degenerate. There is no denying that. Okay, there is absolutely no denying or overlooking the fact that in many instances, the woman's position is not as elevated as uh, ideally the philosophy is presented. But the fact is that the Indic concept looked at the human being as Ardha Narishwara, where every woman has all the strength of the woman and every man has all the, the softness and the gentleness of the woman. And I think if we needed to rewrite or I would say rewrite, but I think we just need to change the lens with which we have interpreted, we are looking at these texts and also the bring forth a more contemporary discourse, but based on a wisdom perspective of what those texts really meant. So I am where I am because I had a lot of senior acharyas who gave me all the support. It was incredible when I was studying with some of these very conservative Brahmanas. First of all, they were ready to teach me. I was not even, I'm not even a Brahman in that sense of the word. Like I don't belong to a, you know, the traditionally from the caste of the Brahman or whatever. They never asked me that question in the first place. Secondly, they were ready to discuss every kind of question, you know, any kind of topic about man, woman, anything in the most open manner with a woman. So I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding and also a, I would say it a conscious uh, malice sometimes in trying to present the Indic society in a certain lens, which is not balanced. Like I said, there are the, the challenges are there and we have to recognize them and take them out, uproot whatever untruth of a practice exists. That has to be done. But at the same time, one has to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. These traditions have been very wise traditions. And why they said, what they said, where a woman's role. In those days, uh, why gurukulas were more for boys were because of the whole complications around the whole menstrual cycle of the woman and the challenges it could bring. So just very simply, it's, it's not that the woman was less educated. She did not have the opportunity of education because she was not going to the gurukula. Her entire education happened in a completely different way. And to say that I am like a CEO, let's say in these Vedic things, is something that I don't fully subscribe to because I think a lot of our mothers, a lot of people who don't get these platforms are far wiser than a lot of men who are in those platforms. So I think one needs to change one's lenses when looking at certain things and look at it with a lot of viveka or this power of discretion as to what is really right, at what point does it tip into being not right, and uh, I would like to probably end just with this idea that at each one of us is foundationally perceived as Ardhanarishwara. And there is nothing that a man can do that a woman cannot do if she trained herself for it. Uh, but that doesn't mean she has to become like the man. She can keep her qualities and incarnate all those qualities of the man. 
and a man can incarnate all those qualities of a woman by still being a man so i think a complete person is one who has this balanced mix rather than being constrained by the biology of one's being thank you that was lovely way to cap everything but before we end you know we do this fun thing where we ask questions about uh, we have the hard part away now it's the fun part <laughs> uh, so are you okay with some questions that we may ask sure, you sure, all sure. right so our first question is one place that you would love to visit hmm japan for some reason okay a beautiful country japan uh, actually it's one of my favorite countries it's a deeper relationship than that i have no idea what it is but japan for some reason has always been there in my from a very young age okay you speak uh, how many 10 languages eight nine, uh, around around 10 yeah, yeah that's what i was reading <laughs> and japanese was one of them i picked up because i thought yeah maybe someday i'll get there moshi moshi arigato gozaimasu um all right uh, one childhood memory that brings joy in your life or you think about it as a spark in your mind i mean just the memory of having grown up in the ashram school and the assurance once there was this very clear assurance of the mother in my inner being let's say of she saying don't worry i'll always be there so <laughs> just that reassurance that so it just i'll add to that quickly is the fact that a friend once asked me that you know on, on your many travels do you see the unseen do you feel the unseen hand i said on my many travels if i did not feel if i did not recognize the hand the seen hand i would be blind so <laughs> she keeps her promise what does it mean to be mindful for you i think being mindful is not being reactive to situations but being responsive to them which means the ability to step back and react from a more conscious i mean respond from a more conscious perspective to life and one person that you would like to meet in the past Sri Aurobindo and the mother. Right. One final question. So we ask uh, people, you know, their favorite song, their favorite film, their favorite book, and you know, I'm not giving you much of choices. So I've heard a lot of mantras from you. So what? Uh, any favorite song that you have, or a movie? Uh, I have a mantra. Uh, more of a mantra. Okay. And maybe <coughs> we can end with that mantra as well. All right. So. Putting thought because there are two that I would like to share. You can so. you can do both. <laughs> okay, so there's one that I think will help us through these times that would be good to put out there at the present times as well as what will come in the future for us. So it's a mantra from the Brihadaranya Kopanishad which says Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityorma Amritangamaya. Om Shanti 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 I'll chant it but before that the meaning of this verse being lead me the the typical translation being lead me from untruth to truth lead me from darkness to light lead me from death to immortality and if one understands the grammar of this verse it could also mean lead me to the truth of the untruth lead me to the light of the darkness lead me to the immortality of death which means that they are not two separate states but the negative hides the positive 
So if one goes beyond, if one pierces through the veils of the darknesses, one will be able to see the light that is hidden behind it. So I'll chant this one, which is Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityorma Amritangamaya Om Shanti 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 The other mantra which is a mantra of well-being and which is again very relevant in today's context is the one which is happiness, good health, positive thinking and not giving sorrow to anybody. So it is Om Sarve Bhavantu Sukhinaha Sarve Santu Niramayaha Sarve Bhadrani Pashyantu this mantra is not just a prayer of well-being, but it also embodies a certain responsibility. For others to be happy, it is important to be happy as a responsibility. For others to have good health, it is important to ensure good health for oneself as a responsibility. For others to see the good, it is important for each individual to practice the good. And finally, for no one to have any sorrow, it is important for every individual to take the responsibility of not giving sorrow to anyone around them. Om. Peace. 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 That's a great way to end. And... Uh... Again, thank you so much, Dr. Chaudhary, for being here, being part of our show, being part of our podcast. Thank you for taking time. And to our listeners who, are, who have tuned in, thank you so much for listening to our show. If you like our show, please share it with your friends and family. Oh, yeah, we are available on iTunes and anywhere a podcast can be heard. Thank you. <laughs>